0: It was around the year A.D. 320, approximately 300 years after Christ had been crucified, dead and buried, raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, that the Roman emperor Licinius was persecuting the followers of Jesus. In Armenia, his 12th legion, nicknamed the Thundering Legion, had 40 men, In the troops that proclaimed Jesus as their Lord, to force a renunciation of the Savior, these 40 were sentenced to spend the night naked upon a frozen lake. Back on land, a warm tent, food, and a hot bath were available to any who would deny Christ. If you had been there in the descending darkness, you would have heard their song... Something like this in translation, O oh Lord, forty wrestlers have come to fight for you. Grant that the forty wrestlers may gain the victory. The song became softer during the night as one by one they died. One soldier, though, gave in. He left his comrades on the ice and went back to the tent where the centurion along with the execution squad, kept watch when he left the remaining ones saying, O oh Lord, thirty-nine wrestlers have come forth to fight for you. Grant that thirty-nine may gain the victory. But the centurion in the tent saw the faith of the thirty-nine And he stripped off his clothes and proclaimed that he was a Christian and went out on the ice to sing again with those remaining alive, O Lord, forty wrestlers have come forth to fight for you. Grant that forty wrestlers may gain the victory. We may think that such stories ended 1,600 years ago, but they did not. In Dr. Brian Chappell's new book, On Prayer, he reminds us that we have sisters and brothers in the Sudan who are dying in exactly the same way. In the year 2000, a radical Muslim regime regime in Sudan targeted Christians for mandatory conversion or execution. The government allowed selective starvation and the bombing of villages to force the Christians to deny their faith. Most remained faithful, so the government undertook a more direct, direct measurement of conversion. Christians were taken in groups 50 miles out into the desert and left there without food or water. Every few days, government trucks would return to the site with an offer to rescue those who would renounce their faith in Jesus. The trucks kept returning until there were no more Christians living. Then they would bring the next group of 50. The horror that continues in this and other forms in the Sudan and other parts of the world is beyond the ability of North American Christians even to fathom Surely none of us would question whether these Sudanese Christians are faithful. Suffering and faithfulness in suffering provides a riveting testimony. And though our Witness will likely be less dramatic. God does produce in us that same faithfulness, at least in all in whom His Spirit is working. Remember Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Self-control, against such there is no law, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In order that we might learn to be faithful in every circumstance in which the Lord places before us, I'm going to read this morning and consider a passage on faith from Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, if you would stand please for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, "...not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner or habit of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment." and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment, do you suppose, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said... Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions "...of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you had a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance." (laughs) So that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And then quoting from the great story of faith in the Old Testament, Habakkuk. And for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Now, faith is the substance or the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Our Father in heaven, you whom no eye has seen, you who sees the very motives of our hearts, you whom no hand can touch, and you who has touched us, In our greatest weaknesses. It is to you alone that we make our prayer this morning. For in you we live and move and have being. We exist in you and by your good pleasure. We know our own blindness apart from your gracious illumination. So we ask boldly for what you have promised. Eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe. We dare not this morning ask because of our faithfulness. Oh no, we are too fickle for that. But we ask in the name of the faithful one. We ask on the authority of His word. We ask great things because we have a great Savior. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In 1963, which of course is, some of you are too young to remember that, and those that are old enough to remember are too old to remember that, and you'll catch on in a minute. In 1963, the official slogan for Coca-Cola was, things go better with Coke, somehow, A little transition happened and a great many people seem to think that the official slogan of Christianity is that things go better with Christ. As if faithfulness to Christ had as its goal making your life more enjoyable. You know, things like this. With Jesus, your marriage will be better. Jesus will make your children more respectable. Jesus will make you feel good about yourself. Hallelujah. Apparently, people are asking this. They may not use these words, but this is what people are asking. Is there something in Christianity that will make my life better? Is there something in Christianity that will make my life better? In our little Friday night small group, we are trying to learn how important it is to ask the right questions. (laughs) Is there something in Christianity to make my life better? Is the wrong question. (laughs) It's the wrong question. And one confirmation, one confirmation, one proof that you know it is the wrong question is that faithfulness, Biblical faithfulness really is of little value, if that were the right question. If Christianity is judged by whether it makes your life better, then faithfulness has no place. That's one of the things I love about apologetics, about explaining the faith to people. Because a lot of people think that when they come to the Bible, they get to ask whatever question they want, like a Ouija board. You ask what you want, and you put your hands on it, and you hum and turn open, and there the answer appears. And God comes to us and says, I have answers for you, but guess what? I'm going to tell you the question you're allowed to ask. And God says, is Christianity something? Is there something in Christianity that will make my life better? Is not a question that we are allowed to ask. Instead, the Bible forces us to ask this. Is there something in Christianity, better than my life? Is there something in Christianity better than my life? And that's the question because when you answer that yes, then faithfulness, and let me say it this way, faithfulness even in suffering will be the result. So let's get to that question. We're going to do so by going through the same process we have each week, that we might see the unity of the fruit of the Spirit. So first, we must embrace the biblical definition of faithfulness. That's number one on your outline. We must embrace the biblical definition of faithfulness. Look at verse 1, the last verse we read in our text, verse 1 of chapter 11. Faith is... The substance or the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now in our English version, you notice obviously there is a different word here defined than the word we're thinking about over in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Here, it tells us what faith is, and in Galatians 5, it is faithfulness, that we are to possess. But in the original language, it is the exact same word in both places. It's pistis. And so what that means is, the context has to tell us whether the author is describing the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, what we call faith, or is in this context, the author described the, describing the character traits of those who have faith. So, is faith in this place talking about the thing that we need to have or the character of us if we have that faith? And so, in the most broad sense, faithfulness is the character trait of those who possess true faith. That's what faithfulness is. It's what happens in your life if you have true faith in Christ. Now, that's helpful, I guess. It's important, I'm sure, but it doesn't really tell us yet what a faithful woman looks like when she's in her home and serving her family and her God. So let's be more specific. Here's a definition that you can write down for faithfulness. Biblical faithfulness is the reliability which comes from works entirely consistent with being a new creation in Christ. Biblical faithfulness is this, it is the reliability which comes when you have works entirely consistent with being a new creation in Christ. Now how do I get to that definition? Let's take it apart as we get to the biblical definition. First notice that faithfulness requires reliability. Faithfulness requires reliability. We know that because the Bible Always connects God's reliability or trustworthiness with his being faithful. Listen to Deuteronomy 7. Know this. Know that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God. How do, what what about him is faithful? He keeps his covenant and steadfast love. Till next week? No. To a thousand generations. He's not just reliable for you. He's reliable for your children and your children's children and your children's children's children to a thousand generations. That's reliability. It's not the only place. Lamentations 3 is, of course, for those of you who know that book, one of the most famous places that talks about God's faithfulness. It's an important book because it appears to us that God is not faithful It's a time when Israel has to be disciplined for their rebellion. And yet in the midst of that, the weeping prophet Jeremiah says this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That's reliable. (laughs) If someone's love never ceases, you can always count on it. It's reliable. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And then that famous line, great is your faithfulness. Do you see it? Faithfulness is reliability. The faithfulness of God is His absolute trustworthiness because all of His actions are completely consistent with His character. God is perfectly dependable. Every word He has ever uttered, has always come to pass. Every promise He has ever made has always been fulfilled. What He has said He will do. You can trust Him. God is faithful. And isn't that exactly what our text says? Look back at verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 10. Why should we hold fast to the faith? Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because He who promised is faithful. Faithfulness requires... What does faithfulness require? What is the first thing? <laughs> what did I do? Reliability. Faithfulness requires reliability. And then second, faithfulness requires godly character. Faithfulness requires... Reliability and faithfulness requires godly character. As I did a little research on faithfulness, I found out that you know, pretty much everyone appreciates faithful people. From Theodore Roosevelt who said, it's better to be faithful than famous. To Cicero, the Roman politician and philosopher who said, nothing is more noble, nothing more venerable than fidelity. Faithfulness and truth are the most sacred excellencies and endowments of the human mind. If you've watched The Godfather, you know that even he demands faithfulness from those who would be near him. And yet, faithfulness is not natural. In fact, mankind is notorious for being unfaithful. Listen to Solomon. He said this, Many a man proclaims his steadfast love, but... A faithful man who can find. King David complained of the exact same thing. Help me, Lord, for the faithful have disappeared from the land. Everyone lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. You see, faithfulness is not naturally found in our hearts, is it? It is not naturally found in our hearts. And so, faithfulness requires reliability. Faithfulness requires godly character. And we don't have it. So, therefore, third, faithfulness requires a new creation. It requires a new creation. I'm sure some of you have seen the miracle on 34th Street. Hey, did any, anybody watch that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You did? Yeah. Do you remember Santa Claus? He defined faith for us there. He's so helpful. Santa Claus says, this is faith. Faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. Wow, I tell you, the Bible defines faith very differently than that. The Bible says anyone with common sense would believe God. (laughs) You look around you at the world around us and you see that it is constantly lying. It seeks to deceive and destroy. And so you ask Who can be trusted? And the answer is God alone. Imagine there's a fire in a building. You're stuck on the tenth floor. So you go over to the window and pull it open in hopes of escaping the fire that has you trapped and coming, is coming at you from your back. According to Santa Claus, faith is when you look down and you see nothing but pavement. So you jump. Because everything about common sense tells you, well, I'm going to die, but I'm going to jump anyway. That's faith. That may be Santa Claus faith, but that's not going to help you much when you land on the pavement. You know what I mean? Splat. Splat. You know what biblical faith is? Biblical faith is looking down and seeing your father there with a cushion that he himself is holding. And not just that, it's seeing... Your faithful brother, Jesus Christ, having gone before you and already proven to you that the cushion will save you. That's faith. It's not jumping when common sense tells you not to. to. It's looking behind and seeing the fire and looking in front and seeing God your Father. Underneath you are the everlasting arms. And seeing your faithful brother, Jesus Christ, having already gone that way and proving that God is faithful. That's biblical faith. And it looks down and sees Christ, and so the question is, will you jump? Will your works be consistent with a person who is full of faith? Now, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we will not jump, will we? It's as if we are there, the Father's down there, the Son has jumped, and yet... The billowing smoke from the fire has made such a screen that you cannot see anything. And it requires the fresh wind of the Holy Spirit to come in and blow away the smoke. Renew your heart and mind so that you can see what is there. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Those without the Spirit can see nothing but the clouds of smoke. But when the Spirit comes and washes away the blindness of sin, we jump because we see the Father. We know He is trustworthy. And we see the Son. We know their character. We are certain of what we hope for. That's why Oswald Chambers said this about faith. Faith never knows where it's being led, but it knows and loves the One who is doing the leading. See, the Spirit gives that knowledge of God so that even though day to day you may not know exactly where God is taking you, you know Him who is leading you and you know He can be trusted. And so the biblical definition of faithfulness is this, it is the reliability in you which comes when your works are utterly consistent with being a new creation in Christ. Now then, second, with that definition, we must deny ourselves the opposite of faithfulness. We must deny ourselves the opposite of faithfulness, and that is willful sin. It's in verses 26 to 31. Let me just read that for us. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment, do you suppose, will he be worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You need to know that there is a great difference between willful sin in this text and the daily temptations and struggles for sin and longing for godliness and yet failing again and again that each of us face. Willful sin in this passage is rejecting the faith. It is knowing the truth and yet turning your back on it, even in the face of overwhelming evidence. Look at Matthew Henry's commentary on your handout. He writes, "...the sin here mentioned is a total and final apostasy with men... When men with a full and fixed will and resolution despise and reject Christ, the only Savior, despise and resist the Spirit, the only sanctifier, and despise and renounce the gospel, the only way of salvation, and the words of eternal life. And all this after they have known, owned, and professed the Christian religion and continue to do so obstinately And maliciously. This is the great transgression. You know, there may be times when some of you here face this great a temptation. You know the truth. You know the call of God upon your life, and yet you get yourself worked up to a point where you are so displeased with what God is asking of you. You are so angry with His will and His works in your life, that you consider chucking it all. Maybe, maybe you are considering even today a life of utter unfaithfulness. If so, heed carefully this warning and deny yourself this sin, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain and fearful expectation of judgment. Deny yourself the sin, of the, the uh, opposite of faithfulness, willful sin. And then third, as we're doing that, we must be cautious of the counterfeit of faith. And the counterfeit of, of faithfulness is timidity. Or, as our versions translate it, the New King James, drawing back, The ESV translates it, shrinking back, all of which help understand the picture. Now, earlier I suggested that I think people are asking this question, is there something in Christianity to make my life better? And it seems to me people think that there is, because the message that things go better with Christ is filling our churches, and it is causing Americans by the millions to claim to be Christians. And what I want you to think with me about is the fact that probably in the past in our country, such a counterfeit faith would never be exposed because it would never be tested. But times are changing. Our country is turning in some ways against faithfulness. Some who stand for Christ are now suffering loss and more of us likely... Will, But there is a great benefit in suffering in there. One benefit is this. You find out whether your faith is genuine. See, counterfeit faith is timid. It shrinks back. It, it draws back from suffering. Look here in our text, and it tells us some of the things that cause timidity, that cause the counterfeit of faith to draw back. Look at verse 34 at the beginning. Paul says, or the author says, not Paul, counterfeit faith shrinks back from the chains that belong to the faithful. Do you see that in verse 34? It, it draws back from the plundering of our goods. See, if you have a counterfeit faith, when someone says to you, "Oh, you're a Christian," well, then I'm going to take from you what belongs to you. We counterfeit faith shrinks back from that. So, whoa, well, maybe I'm not. Look at verse 36. It is timid when endurance is called for, and when doing the will of God brings suffering. You see, faithfulness in suffering makes no sense at all to a timid faith, to a counterfeit faith. But what if instead of saying this, instead of asking, is there something in Christianity which makes my life better? Because the author here would say, this did not make my life better in that kind of way. What if there is something in Christianity which is better than your life? Then would not Jesus say this, If you desire to come after me, take up your cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life... Now, why would I try to save my life? Because I think my life is the most important thing. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Friends, this is no time for timidity. (laughs) It is no time for timidity. But know this, faithfulness will sometimes get you killed. So you better be sure if you know whether Christ is better than life. Because if He is, faithfulness will never lose Christ. Then fourth, we must actively cultivate this biblical faithfulness. We must actively cultivate this biblical faithfulness. How do we do that? Well, the first step is that we must know the faithful God. We must know the faithful God. Corey Ten Boom was imprisoned in terrible places and watched her sister die while in a Nazi concentration camp. So she is one who knows faithfulness in the midst of it. And she said this, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. See what she's saying? Faithfulness depends upon knowing a faithful God. And the corollary is this, You will not be faithful until and unless... You know the faithful God. Is He your dwelling place? Do you know that underneath your life are His everlasting arms? How do we get to know the faithful God? Let me give you three simple steps. Read and meditate on the Scriptures which teach of His faithfulness. For it is by the Word of God that faith comes. And then second, memorize verses on His faithfulness so that when times of doubt and despair come, you are not left unarmed, but you have the Word hidden in your heart and mind. And then third, ask Him. Pray to the faithful God and ask Him to convince you of how faithful He is. We must know the faithful God if we're going to cultivate biblical faithfulness in our lives. Then second, We must not count our lives as precious. If you have read the New Testament, surely you would agree that Paul, the apostle, was one of the most faithful men ever to live. Look at Acts chapter 20. I think I've given you that on the the handout if you'd like to look at it there or turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 20 verse 22. Acts chapter 20 verse 22. Look at what Paul says. He's speaking to the elders in Ephesus. And he says, And see, now I go, bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. I don't know exactly what's going to happen. Except I know this, the Holy Spirit testifies that in every city, chains and tribulations await me. Wow. But, none of these things move me. I mean, how can Paul get to the point where none of these things move me? He tells us. Obviously, it's because he knows the faithful God, but there's another step that you have to take. Look at what it says. I do not count my life dear, or probably a better translation of Timios, precious. Boy, if something's precious... You know, you you carry it around like this. Your kids find one of those precious little butterflies out in the yard. You carry it so delicately. Paul's saying that some of us do that. We're so concerned with our own lives, we we carry them around delicately to make sure nothing ever interferes with our happiness. Because after all, Jesus' purpose in the world is to make me happy. Paul says, that's not what I do. When I look at my life, I just drop it on the floor. I don't count it as precious at all so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace. Friends, when you entertain in your heart the question, how is Christ making my life better, you will not be faithful because our lives have become to us precious and we think that God exists to make us happy. (laughs) Faithfulness means living a life utterly consistent with the profession of faith in Christ who was crucified, who counted his life nothing but gave it up for you. Paul knew that. He knew that faithfulness did not make his life better. But he knew that Christ was better than his life. And so faithfulness for Paul was better than life. Do you know that? Is that true for you? And then third, we must first know the faithful God. Second, we must not count our lives as precious. And then third, we must begin. And the emphasis in that point is on the word begin, To live consistently with our profession. I mean, let's just be honest. Those little opening stories that I told, probably at least some of you begin to think, I wonder what happens to me if the Muslims come here and they march me out into the middle of the great uh, desert in Utah and leave me there to die. Well, I renounce the faith. Some of you who are mothers probably have thought, I wonder if I will give up my child for the faith. And that time may come. But listen, even if you're not post-millennial, if you just do the statistical thing, there are not a whole lot of you that that's going to happen to. That's not our biggest concern, or should not be our biggest concern. Listen, here's the question. The question is not, will I deny the faith at gunpoint? The question is, will I deny the faith... When Jesus says to me, honor your wife as Christ loves the church. (laughs) The question is not, are you going to give up your precious children at the point of a sword when the Muslim hordes rise and take DC? The question is, tomorrow, when your husband comes home and says something stupid, are you going to respect and honor him? That's where the faith will be tested in our lives. A bank employee was due for a promotion and he was all excited about that and he was in the little cafeteria across the street from the bank and you know how the cafeteria, you go down the little line and you get your food. He got his meatloaf and his Brussels sprouts and big piece of cake open. And, and then he got to the bread, he got him a piece of bread and then he got to those little, you know, the little pats of butter, how they're on the little piece of cardboard and they have the little butter there and the little wax paper that covers, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Does that make sense? They're a nickel a piece. He took two pieces of butter and lifted up his bread and stuck them underneath so he wouldn't have to pay that dime. Unbeknownst to him, the president of the bank was two people back and he watched it. And he said, I can't trust that man to be promoted to vice president in my bank for two sticks of butter, one dime. His career was lost. You know, Jesus said, if we're faithful in the little things, we can be trusted with much. In 1485, Richard III was fighting against Henry the Earl of Richmond at Bosworth Field seeking to defend England from this usurper to the throne. It's the fight which Caused Shakespeare to write, "My horse, no, yeah, my uh, my kingdom, my kingdom for a horse." Anybody remember that line? Richard was on his horse. <laughs> his horse lost its horseshoe, and he was thrown. And the horse went off because he could not go into battle, leaving us this nursery rhyme: "For want of a nail, the shoe was lost." For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the whole kingdom was lost. All for the want of a horseshoe nail. And so Richard III lost the kingdom to Henry. And Henry became king of England. Faithful in the little things is where we begin. We begin now to be faithful where God has placed us. The king of Persia one day needed a faithful servant and he had two candidates for the office. So he told each of them, Bear and Steve, he said, if you guys will go out and do this job for me, I will give you both a full day's wage. And here's the job. There's a well here and two buckets. Dip the bucket down into the well, scoop up the water, carry it over here to the other side of the field, and dump the water in this cane basket. So the men began to do that because his promised pay was quite large. So as they dipped the water, the guys... Carried them over there and they dumped them in the basket, and lo and behold, the basket was made of cane. The water just (laughs) fell right out. They tried to decide were they doing the right thing? They decided that's exactly what he said to do. So they went back and did it again, and they they filled filled up the cane basket and all the water drained out. And one of the guys just threw down his bucket and said, I'm not doing this stupid job. This is a fool's errand. I'm not going to do this kind of work. And he stormed off. The other man continued to pick up buckets of water, carried them over, dumped them in, and watched the water drain out of the basket. All day long he did that. As he got down to the bottom and scooped up probably maybe two or three buckets left. He's almost done. Takes it over here. Dumps it into the cane basket and as he turns around, something flashes and there was a diamond ring that the king's wife had lost in the well when she was there the other day. The, The king had a purpose for his plan and it's those, you know, sometimes you just don't know what he's doing. And... Somebody, I can't remember who it was, said, if he were to tell you, your mind would blow up. You just can't, we just can't get our heads around all that God is doing. But our passage says this. Do not cast away your confidence because it has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive... The promise. Sometimes faithfulness will feel like a fool's errand. But there is a reward that you cannot even yet imagine as you pour your life into the sieve of God's faithfulness. There is something... Better said, there is someone that is worth more than your life. Even Christ. And He is faithful and will reward your faithfulness. Lord Jesus, we thank You for this promise in Hebrews. This reminder that You are always faithful. As You tell us in Timothy, even at the times when we are faithless, You are still faithful for you cannot go back on your word, and you have promised to save your people to the uttermost. Please, come Holy Spirit. Renew our hearts and minds. Set our joy on being like Christ. And of being filled to overflowing with the faithfulness of our Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.